Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Judah and Noah. Bad idea to be eating while recording a podcast. <laughs> That's what I, want. I think you just got to take care of yourself. Well, <laughs> am I taking care of our audience though? <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, because no one ever talks to us. <laughs> no one no. says a word. When I hear in a peep, people keep listening, but no one says shit. I know. What's up with you, people? I, I look forward to the first email we ever get. We're going to send a special prize to whoever oh. sends us that first email. Could that be? I don't know, but we're gonna find something. Maybe we'll have him on as a guest. <laughs> that's too. It's going too far. We need more information before we can go there. That's true. <laughs> Who would that per- that person be? Anyway, while I'm while I'm mm. eating this delicious uh, keto friendly yes bread thing that you just made <laughs> and generously offered, why don't you talk a little bit about this massive tome that you're reading? Oh my. Hmm. Well, I am reading currently the Mahabharata, uh, the translation by Ramesh Manun, which is um, the Mahabharata is one of, uh, it's the second of three epics from India. And the Mahabharata is the great war, the war to end all wars, Hmm. the war between cousins, the Kauravas and the Pandavas. And so that's the war that's referred to in the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, exactly. In mm-hmm. fact, the Bhagavad Gita is built into the Mahabharata. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. how many war to end all wars have we had now? I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Probably quite a few. But this one is takes place right at the turning of, from the Dwapara Yuga into the Kali Yuga. So we literally cross into the Kali Yuga during this war. And it's the war to uh, cleanse the earth of as much evil as possible and the domination of the Kshatriyas, which were like the kingly fighting caste of, of India at that time. And it's a battle beyond epic proportions to that Krishna comes as the incarnation of Vishnu which is when Vishnu incarnates, it's to clean house for the most part. And that's... To, in order to maintain. Exactly. Right. So Krishna and uh, his cousin Arjuna, they are of the Pandavas. And um, the Pandavas were exiled from their kingdom for 13 years. 12 hmm. of those years uh were just in the jungles, and the, the final year they had to go um, incognito. They couldn't be discovered. For if they were, they would be exiled another dozen years. Hmm. And so, uh, at the end of that exile, Yudhishthira, who is the or Yudhishthir, who's the oldest of the Pandava brothers, which is uh, there's uh, Yudhishthir, there's Bhima, who's the son of the wind. All the Pandava brothers, so which includes Arjuna. As well, and there's then, five. Is that right? Yep, Sahadeva, and uh, oh my God, uh, Nakula. So, mm-hmm. so you have Yudhishthir, the oldest, who's the the king to be. You have Bhima, Arjuna, 
Sahadeva and Nakula. Those so are the five Arjuna's Pandavas. The, middle child. The, the who's the middle? Arjuna, yeah. Mm-hmm. Arjuna's the middle. And they're all sons of gods, so they're what what are called Deva Putras. And so they're all the sons of, of, of different gods. And um they are fighting their cousins, the Kravas. So the Pandavas are on the side of Dharma and Krishna is with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Kauravas are a Dharma and they have just been, they, they have been what's called the Kuru line and they are the first in this lineage. It's the most noble house ever in existence and they are the first to bring evil into it, to go yeah, the path of a Dharma. They were uh, said to be Ruled by a blind king. Yes, Dhritarashtra. Yes, mm-hmm. or Dhritarashtra. And uh, so he, he is the blind king, and his brother was Pandu. And Pandu actually conquered most of the region for his brother. And then he dies due to a curse that he has. And um, his brother, Dhritarashtra, who's the, the blind king, instead of treating his brother's sons as his own sons, turns on them in jealousy. But his, he has a hundred sons, the oldest being Duradhan. And Duradhan, they were, all these children were born in an evil way. The mother, at the time of giving her birth, she aborted. And it, was, it wasn't a, for, a fully formed fetus. And a, a rishi comes and separates all the flesh into a hundred pieces and puts them in clay pots and casts this spell and all the children, all the sons of this king, a hundred of them are born. And the oldest, Duradhan, when he was born, he was the biggest and he had fangs for teeth and all these omens came out like jackals in the night and vultures and like all these evil omens, uh, raining blood, raining flesh. Uh, happen, and the brother, the king's brother Vidura, who is a sage, is a wise one. Says, you know, this is an evil omen, and the king says, "What can I do to stop this?" And he says, "The very thing you won't—that is, kill your son now, hmm. before he grows, because Duradana is the incarnation of evil, hmm. and Duradan is the one who has pushed for this war. He is his ego, his greed." His, his hatred and jealousy of his cousins is what drives this war. And he's been given a hundred chances, been warned a hundred times by like the wise ones in his kingdom, such as his father, his father's brothers, so, and his, his guru, and he won't listen. It's interesting that on the one hand, we have these five sons, right? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, a hundred of a blind king. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Who was not only physically blind, but spiritually blind. He was blinded by filial love. Right. And chose the path of a dharma or non-truth. Right. Over truth because of his love for his son. Which is essentially a materialist point of view. Mm Mm-hmm. That, you know, that particular... Uh, blood of my blood right. is more important than any eternal truth. Right. 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 Even with Krishna on their side. And everybody, they all seem to know who Krishna is. Everyone knows that he's Vishnu incarnate. They know he's an avatar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's spoken over and over. The blue one is the the dark one. The blue one, he's an avatar. Uh, they all know he's he's Vishnu incarnate. and um, And he's still like... 
they can. Well, the way I heard the story, and I haven't read the whole uh, epic, so I don't know if this is true, but I heard that Krishna gave both sides a choice as to what powers mm -hmm. they might choose to have on their side in this great conflict. Yes. And that the blind king and his sons chose Krishna's material powers, right. his, uh, his armies and what have you, and weapons. Whereas the, what are they called? The pa, pa, Pandavas. Pandavas, they chose Krishna's spiritual uh, guidance. Right. Right. So as they came out of exile, they sent messengers, uh, the Pandavas sent messengers to the Kauravas to say, please give us our rightful kingdom back, which is this place called Indrastapur. In as the war is getting like closer to being announced, um, Duradana, the evil prince, is is sent to go ask for Krishna's help in the war, and Arjuna goes at the same time from their two different places. the 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 rule was is that whoever gets to a, a king first and asks for his help, that king has to honor that request. Mm -hmm. So Duradana tries to get to Krishna before Arjuna does, and he does, but he but Krishna is asleep. And they're both led into his chamber, and and Arjuna is at the foot of the bed, and uh, Duradana is at the side, kind of off in a corner. And when Krishna awakes, even though Duradana was there first, the first one he sees is Arjuna. Hmm. And so he says, "Well, the first one I saw was Arjuna, but I'll honor you too, Duradana, if you say you were first. So I'll give you a choice." You can have, Dordana, you can have either my army or you can have me uh, on your side and I won't fight. Hmm. And Dordana just laughs and he says, well, that's obvious. I'll take your army. And Arjuna's like, thank you because all I want is Krishna. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And, and It's amazing how the stories speak the truth. You know, without yeah. having to like spell it out in technical terms or something like that, it's like so naturally woven into the narrative of the story. Uh, it's incredible. It's it's an amazing story of, you know. And I read the Ramayana before this one. So. <laughs> incredible. <laughs> I was saying before we started recording how you love these long <laughs> texts that you know uh, require an incredible amount of dedication in order to get all the way through. Mm. I'm more like, you know, give me the reader's digest, you know, <laughs> give me some kind of a summary thing. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, I had to, I had to, was, and that was by Ramesh Manon as well. So if anybody has an interest in the Mahabharata or, uh, the, the Ramayana, and then there's another one, and I think it's called Bhargata Parva. Um, and that's, that's the, the that's the third epic. And, um, but Ramesh Manon writes with the most, oh, it's beautiful. It's poetic. It's not, it's got like. It's scholarly yet written poetically, so it's not dry. But when I read these from him, I feel immediately in the story. Like I'm Is in it. Is he a contemporary translator? Yeah. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Like I think he put out the Ramayana in like two thousand five, maybe. Hmm. So but uh you know, the Ramayana that goes back you know, the time frame for that is over a million years ago, supposedly. Oh that yeah, so that was one of the things what you just said struck me as being interesting because if we're transitioning from what is the previous uh, Dwapara 
Into the Kali. Yeah. Right. So the cleansing of the evil obviously didn't work. <laughs> I mean, the Kali Yuga well, is, a, well, is a time of darkness, right? right. It, was, it was to do as much as they could because to prepare, to for, prepare for Otherwise, it would otherwise, be a lot worse. Exactly. Otherwise, so, it would be the utter ruin of right. humanity. Yeah. So what is the characteristic of, what is the previous Yuga? Dwapara. Dwapara. So how, yeah. how would you characterize that? The, the Dwapara was like a yuga of action, I think, is, huh. is how they call it. So, And is that after the Sat Yuga? That is the third yuga. So the there's yuga. the Sat or the Krita Yuga, which is the golden age, which is an age of truth. And then there is the... Um, the uh, Treta Yuga, and I can't remember the exact. I was just looking at this today, and I can't remember the exact theme, characteristic theme for that Yuga. You can send it to me, and I'll insert it into the audio here. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be great because it's really <laughs> cool. And I, I have it, I know where I can find it. Okay, here we have the characteristics of each Yuga according to Wikipedia. The Satya Yuga is the first and best Yuga, the age of truth and perfection. This yuga has 0% of crime and 100% of kindness. It's also referred to as the Krita Yuga, so named because there was but one religion. And all men were saintly, therefore they were not required to perform religious ceremonies. Humans were gigantic, powerfully built, honest, youthful, vigorous, erudite, and virtuous. The Vedas were one. All mankind could attain to supreme blessedness. There was no agriculture or mining as the earth yielded those riches on its own. So it's kind of a Garden of Eden situation. Weather was pleasant and everyone was happy. There were no religious sects. There was no disease, decrepitude, or fear of anything. And then we have the Treta Yuga. It's considered to be the second Yuga in order. However, Treta means the third. In this age, virtue diminishes slightly. Many emperors rise to dominance and conquer the world. Wars become frequent and weather begins to change to extremities. Oceans and deserts are formed. So I guess even back then we had radical climate change. Uh, people become slightly diminished compared to their predecessors. Agriculture, labor, and mining becomes existent. And then we have Dvapara Yuga. It's considered to be the third Yuga in order. Dvapara means two-part or after two. In this age people become tainted with tamasic qualities, which I believe tamas is ignorance. And they are not as strong as their ancestors. Diseases become rampant. Humans are discontent and fight each other. Vedas are divided into four parts. People still possess characteristics of youth in old age. Average lifespan of humans is around a few centuries. And then the Kali Yuga, the final age. It is the age of darkness and ignorance. People become sinners and lack virtue. They become slaves to their passions. Society falls into disuse. And people become liars and hypocrites. Knowledge is lost and scriptures are diminished. Humans eat forbidden and dirty food. The environment is polluted, water and food become scarce. Wealth is heavily diminished. Families become non-existent. By the end of Kali Yuga, the average lifespan of humans will be as low as 70 years. It also says here that the actual duration of Yugas is still 
controversial. But maybe that controversy is just a characteristic of the Kali Yuga. Back to the regularly scheduled episode. And then the Dopara was like a yuga of action. It was like uh, where the Kshatriyas were like the dominant force. And these were like the kingly priests. They're not kingly, but yeah, they were kingly, devotional. They had gurus and they were warriors. So to die in battle was the greatest honor to achieve swarga or heaven. It's kind of like Rome, like that kind of uh, militaristic, materialistic oriented society. Yeah, very spiritually oriented because a lot of the weapons that they're working with, what's really fascinating if you read the Ramayana and you read the Mahabharata, but the weapons that they work with are what they call astras and, and they're a lot of times they're mantra initiated. So there's mantras to create these weapons and fire off these weapons. So you have to have a spiritual understanding. And in fact, in the Ramayana, the person who gives Rama all of his weaponry is his is the the guru uh, Aswamitra, who uh, is a rishi. He's like a fully enlightened. He's mastered every single mantra mantra oriented weapon there is that exists. But he was born a kshatriya, and his his jealousy and hatred for a rishi um, set him on this path to of great spiritual study of great what's called tapasya. And uh, who's a rishi again? A rishi is like a seer. They can see mm. through all time, past, present, future. So these are like the sadhus or the holy men. So he had a hatred for for this particular for spiritual a particular man. one. Yeah. Oh. Uh, Brahma's, I, I think he was, I can't remember if it was Brahma's son. Um, because he revealed something they didn't want to see? Uh, yeah, pretty much. It was like right. th- there was a jealousy there, of, uh, uh, and I can't remember what, what's, what sparked it. Well, you could say that in general that, they're, that uh, a devoted materialist would have a hatred for a devoted spiritualist. Mm, you could. And then, but then in order to conquer this particular this particular, um, um, you know, Rishi, uh, he does all this spiritual work and keeps battling and keeps battling and he, and he keeps going for all this spiritual work to the point where he finally gets to the point where he's mastered everything and he realizes that it's not, that, that he, he comes to that full self-realization and he gives up the battle. Huh. Because now he sees, but wow. he's so he's gone through this what mass, a path to enlightenment. Yeah, and it's like thousands of years, right? So it's like thousands huh. of years of this activity, and huh. he masters every single weapon there is. And as a wise man now, as like the 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 head spiritual force of of Rama's, uh, um, you know, military line, the Ishvakus is their hmm. name. Uh, he gives Rama all this weaponry hmm. and teaches him all the mantras to use it. And huh. Yeah, so it's really this... That's a fascinating... I mean, it seems like uh, these characters who are given lifespans of thousands of years, you can think of them as being developments within society. Right. That there's a certain kind of type of soul that's working its karma out and has a developmental process going mm-hmm. on within society, and you can see that within uh, the military people, and you know more martial arts, like 
there are a lot of people within the martial arts who have come exactly to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, they go mm-hmm. through this rigorous training and they learn how to whoop ass big time. Mm-hmm. And then they get to this point where they're just like, I'm going to just hand over my weapons and preach peace and just mm-hmm. practice loving kindness. And, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing to observe that there's so many different pathways. If you decide that you're going to really take things as deeply as possible, there are many, many avenues to the truth. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But far fewer avenues to the truth than there are to falsehood, (laughs) sadly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God, yes. You know, one of the recurring themes of both of these epics, uh, the Ramayana is is the Adi Parva, which is the first epic ever, Hmm. the first epic ever written. Um, and, uh, and then the Mahabharata is the second, but ever uh, written in the history of the world. uh, Yeah. As far as I'm aware. Yeah. That's, that's what they say about it. They say they're like, I mean, to put it in like modern terms are like spiritual transmissions that Hmm. even just by reading it, you're getting this deep imprinting of spiritual teaching. And I, yeah, I mean, you read these and it's profound spiritual truths. I mean, from the beginning to the end. And I'll bet you it's even more profound if you read it in Sanskrit. Yeah, exactly. Because apparently, I mean, from what the little I know about Sanskrit, it is one of the most beautifully constructed languages ever. Right. So elegant and like where the parts are just, everything relates. Mm-hmm. And there's this basically like an embedded poetry to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and, and the tones and the, yeah, it's, it's they're they're amazing, but one of the recurring themes here that I that I think has really got me through the last few weeks of my life, <laughs> <laughs> bringing things back to practical considerations here. Yeah, mm-hmm. is um, the power of accepting and seeing the fate and destiny of life. Yeah. Right. So that no matter what is happening, realizing that that's what's meant to happen, and that there's some sort of fate or destiny behind it. Right, And you may not be able to see it and it may seem like you're being wronged. It may seem like uh, the world is out to get you mm-hmm. um, or you're cursed. But the reality is we don't know what's being put in motion through this. And all we can do is navigate or what, all, what I am finding I can do is navigate it with the greatest grace I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And seeing it for what it is, which is life unfolding and not getting caught up in the why is this happening or woe is me, right. but really hold my neutrality and look and go, wow, this is what's unfolding and it's really sad and devastating and yet at the same time I have to trust this. Yeah, and that something will be at the very least learned from it. Right. So uh, there's, it does seem a direct relation between suffering and wisdom. Yes, exactly. So we go through these difficulties, and if we're paying attention and we don't blame, we don't play the victim, right. we come out with a greater richness in our own understanding exactly, you know, and state of being. Exactly. They say, oh, the, throughout both of them, oh, they, they say over and over again, oh, those who suffer are, 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 um, are truly blessed because they become wise. Right. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that is basically the crucible of uh, of the path. Yeah, yep. Um, it's interesting to note that so many spiritual um, hucksters mm. promise uh, bliss, right, and freedom from stress and pain, right, 
if only you'll practice this particular set of, hmm, seems like probably not. That's actually probably a pretty good warning sign. Yeah. Red flags when all yeah. of a sudden it's all like, yeah, yeah, all your problems will be solved. Right. Transcending any kind of challenges or whatnot. And not, not saying that, you know, uh, life, you know, the easy path doesn't really, that's not for the, um, the ones who want growth in life. Well, they say, you know, easy now, hard later. (laughs) Hard now, easy later. Easy later, exactly, exactly. And I I just, uh, it's not like I want challenge all the time. I I want some, like, times of ease and times of, um, uh, you know, grace and flow. But then there's these times of challenge that help me keep my sword sharp. Yeah. Where it keeps my, my skills intact. And I think that it, you know, without honed, that, I should say, without that sense of having progression in one's life, it's very difficult to truly feel at ease. Right. Because life is always moving on. Right. And we have to continue to move with it in one way or another. It seems to me that fundamentally the true place of rest is within the spiritual domain because mm-hmm. there really is no material resting zone. You know, ultimately it's the eternal that is the the ground of being. And so... That's where we find peace. Yeah. You know, um, the physical world is never really restful. It's constantly churning. You know, uh, everything is moving and vibrating all the time. Right. So it seems that the, uh, that the spiritual development is necessary in order to be able to handle the material existence without it ruining you. Right. Yeah, it's that. And and in some ways those the the blind king and his sons are a representation of the material world ruining someone. And and it's interesting that it's the more populated kind of side of the family. Yeah. Cuz it's all one big family and that's Arjuna's dilemma, right? Is right. that he doesn't want to fight his cousins and his all cousin, these people he's come to love. His cousins, his grandfather, Right, his his uncle, you know, it's it, his his um, um, uh, guru. Right, that's interesting and ironic that the guru also yeah is on that other side. And they all and the and the grandfather and the guru um, both know. They both know that that it's a it's a hopeless battle against Arjuna because he has Krishna. Right. And that there, and that all the Pandavas are Devaputras, they're sons of gods. So, well, you could say that in a certain sense, that's a representation of the ascendancy of the eternal, irrespective mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the material's uh, protestations. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so all of this noise and destruction and terror can churn on for as long as it possibly can, but eventually it will peter out in the face of the eternal, which is the spiritual domain. Mm-hmm. So the, that's, that's the connectivity there. It's like the, the it's interesting because, of course, Vishnu is the, the continuity. Sustainer, right? Right? Yeah. And then um, Shiva is the creator destroyer. Destroyer. That, Brahma is the creator. Vishnu is like the sustainer and Shiva is like the destroyer. I've thought of it like Brahma is the dreamer within which the battle between Shiva and Vishnu occurs. And that Shiva is kind of like chaos because chaos has both a destructive and and 
constructive sure. process to it. Sure. And Vishnu is like order, mm-hmm. right? So it's that kind of dialectic between the basic, you know, yin yang type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that and that it's all occurring within Brahma because that's like the mind of God. Mm-hmm. That's the way I've thought of that. But I know that like the development of the Hindu trinity is something that changed a lot over the course of time. Right. And it took a while for them to distill it to those three gods as being the ones of which all others are a manifestation. Right. Is my understanding that Brahma was born out of a lotus that sprouted from the navel of Vishnu. See, that's bizarre. <laughs> right? So Vishnu resting on the seas, I believe, it, it, and that's a particular, he has different names for different aspects of himself, but uh-huh. and I can't remember the name of this one, but he's resting on the seas and uh, on the sea of water and out of his navel sprouts a, a lotus flower and from that lotus flower comes Brahma. So an interesting thing comes into play there because you could think of the concept of continuity as being um, the foundation of any existence. Mm -hmm. And so it would precede anything, even the mind within which this world is dreaming. So you you could make the case that like, there is a Vishnu underlayment mm. upon which Brahma then rests his dreaming head. Mm-hmm. And then within that mind, the dynamic of Vishnu and Shiva play itself out. Right. And the, the Shiva is kind of the, the little fluctuations on the surface of what is fundamentally a deep wellspring of continuity. Mm-hmm. Because the changes are, you know, when we think about all the things that are happening in our lives— Right, and they seem so momentous and intense and overwhelming and important. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of consider that life is this little thing on the surface of one tiny planet in a single solar system in a galaxy of billions of stars and apparently a <laughs> bunch of other galaxies. And it's sort of like, oh, those changes happening there are super significant, are they? <laughs> you know? It's like, no, that's just happening on a little surface and there's a bunch of other big changes happening. But they're also kind of basically just surface phenomena right. in the continuity if you look at the whole thing in kind of a general sense. So so what the hell are we talking about? So, I mean, well, yeah, well, here, I mean, you're going somewhere really interesting. And one of the things I think of is, is the Hindu concept of time, which I'm, I'm researching and I'm, I'm still trying to grasp all the numbers. But the way it looks is it's something like, this is something like a day and a night of Brahma is something like four point some odd trillion years, I believe. Trillion. Trillion years is one day and one night to Brahma. I believe. Don't quote me on this, everybody. But if you want to, look, if you want to look up the Hindu concept of time, you'll see. But there's a lot to break down because you have you have what a day and a night is to Brahma, and it's so many divine years. And a divine year is twelve thousand, or a divine year is three hundred and sixty-five human years. Hmm. And but well, so it's also interesting to note that they're putting the day in terms of Brahma. So Brahma right. is playing this role of sort of like universal timekeeper in a certain sense. Right. And so when Brahma opens his eyes in its day, there's existence. Hmm. And then when that day comes to an end, four point some odd trillion years, he closes his eyes and everything dissolves. And then when he opens his eyes again, big bang, you have another birth of a universe. So... How long does he close his eyes for? <laughs> What's going on when he closes his eyes? That's the great, that's the void. 
So that's the void. There's no time in the void. Exactly. So it doesn't and, matter. Right. And I don't, I don't, you know, it's a day, of, I guess maybe a full day and a full night, the four point some odd trillion years, whatever is happening during that sleep time, I don't know. Well, there but it seems like the void, that seems like from what I can understand, that's the void. When he sleeps, all of creation dissolves. Huh. And so now you're back into the void, the right. black. Right, the nothingness. And then when he opens his eyes again, you have the Big Bang and you have creation come into existence. Hmm. And then within that day, there's multiple other sorts of really long spans of time, like hundreds of millions of years, that, you know, there's time frames that are ruled by specific Manus. What's a Manu? Manu is uh, the, the being who will bring the next race of humans into existence. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and there's a particular Manu for so many hundreds of millions of years. Huh. Uh, and that's envisioned as like a god or something? Yeah. He's just kind of, or is there a like biological the archetype, almost like the archetype of. Is there a biological component to that? I believe so. Or is yeah. it more like an energetic type of thing? Well, it's not like a physical form, but it is what brings the, the next race of humans onto the planet. So, that, that, it's like an energetic imprint, a yeah. kind of pattern. Yeah. So it's, it's well, super. We got to revisit that idea yeah. a little bit. Let's I'll, see I'll if we do can bookmark research. that. But yeah. The the idea of Brahma opening and closing his eyes, and that the universe experiences multiple kind of big bangs on that basis. That to me, I find kind of instinctually more satisfying than the idea <laughs> that we're in. Uh, a single expanding universe that will expand forever. Like yeah. that just seems like nothing really works like that. What what on earth could what on earth? Mm-hmm. What in, in cosmos in, in the cosmos, yeah, could possibly expand forever. Right. That that's been something that's been troubling me lately because there's so much pinned on that right now. You know, it, it, the the idea that's running right now is that we're in this expanding universe that's not only expanding but it's expanding at a, an accelerating rate. Right. It gets faster and faster, and it's like, okay, realistically speaking, is that actually something that could continue indefinitely? Mm. Seems unlikely. Does seem unlikely. And, you know, it gives me greater satisfaction, too, because the cosmology behind it, there's meaning. There's, like, real depth of meaning to this, whereas, uh, you know, shit just happened and boom, you know. Well, it ties (laughs) it to our existence. Yeah. You know, because we recognize these archetypes in our own living. Yes. And that's the beauty of the Hindu concept of all fundamental forces, which is kind of what the gods are, are manifestations of these three primary forces. Right. And there's something truly beautiful about that. And I wouldn't be surprised if when science finally gets its shit together, (laughs) if it does, (laughs) that that they don't discover that we're talking about three fundamental primary forces. Right. But, you know, I wonder when Brahma starts to close his eyes, you know, Mm. it's probably not like they're shut. Right. So there is, I would imagine, a transition mm-hmm. between day and night. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like in the universe? Possibly like right? a Kali Yuga. Well, it may be that there's a, yeah. yeah, it might be a Kali Yuga. Right. Right. So it could be uh, obviously a time of darkness is mm-hmm. what it's being characterized as. Mm-hmm. So it would be closing down, mm-hmm. sort of like the light dimming, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Universally speaking, would we see a reversal of this expansion? If the opening of the eyes is a big bang and things are expanding, mm-hmm. are we now talking about a period of contraction, of universal contraction? It seems like that would be the case. Right. Right. 
you know, from the scientific point of view, the question then becomes, you know, at some point or another, it would become observable in the sense that the universe would no longer be expanding. Mm. And it would probably take a while before we would get that message because supposedly we're talking about um, evidence from the fringes of the universe that come in as light information. So when the envelope of the um, of the entire universe shifts direction, it would probably uh, ar- the message would probably arrive late, mm. late in the game. Mm-hmm. It would probably appear as if things were still expanding for quite some time if there was a turnaround, because those light messages wouldn't shift until whatever number of billion of years passes of the distance between us and them in light years. Right. And who's to say we're going to receive it but while we're still here, right? It seems unlikely. It does. And, and so expansion and contraction is one of the great uni- uh, uh, universal themes, isn't it? Right? No doubt. It is, it is, you know, breath in, breath out, food in, food out. Everything goes from periphery to center and center back to periphery or center to periphery. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to say. From center to periphery and back from periphery to center. And you could say that basically that is uh, the pattern with consciousness as well. Consciousness mm-hmm. is a center. Mm-hmm. And I would say that consciousness is the thing which organizes things around a center. Mm-hmm. And that's because consciousness perceives things as occurring from a center. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we draw things in or we experience things coming in. Mm-hmm. And then we issue forth mm-hmm. uh um, expressions, right. radiation. Or, or we look out and then we can turn our gaze back in. Mm-hmm. Right? We can look out into the world and project out and then we have the opportunity and the choice available to us to be able to turn our gaze back in. Well, that's the funny thing about being in a body is that you have the out there experience mm-hmm. which can really fundamentally be applied to both the body itself and the environment within which the body is existing. Mm-hmm. Because the, the sense of being a conscious thing is something that emanates through the body. The senses are mediators mm-hmm. with the environment. So you could think of consciousness as being some sort of a center into which the senses are plugged, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the immediate environment of consciousness is the body. Yeah. So you can think of the body as being the first layer of what's out there Yes. For, in the, from the perspective of consciousness. Yeah. And then from the perspective of the body, which the consciousness is experiencing, you then have the environment that the body is inside of, which is another out there. It's another layer out there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So on a certain level, when, you know, when you're saying, I'm looking inward, if you're looking inward to your body, from my point of view, that's still outward from your consciousness, mm-hmm. right? But looking inward in the consciousness, you know, noticing what occurs within your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, noticing what occurs within the heart mind, yes. really. Yes. Right? Yes. So, you know, the, the heart aspect is kind of a more body-oriented set of messages that consciousness receives. It's rooted in the physical, mm-hmm. right? The nexus of those two things formulates experience, essentially, mm-hmm. the, the thinking, feeling. And then the ability to observe what those things are is a more interiority than whatever 
gastrointestinal experiences you're currently having or any other types of mm-hmm. bodily function, pain, sensation, what have you. Mm-hmm. And then even behind that, I think there's this other level of you know, what might be called like pure consciousness. So in, in some level, maybe the Steiner category of soul is what we're talking about when you're observing your own thoughts heart, mind, thought pattern. Thought, feelings, feeling. and will impulses. Right. Yeah. And then behind that is this kind of the I, the root of consciousness, just the... Um, the center point. Yeah, it's the being. Yeah. The isness, I guess, mm-hmm. is what the, the Buddhists would say, mm-hmm. right? We could also um, call it the self, with a capital L. Yeah, I guess so. S. You know, that's one of the, the things that it's another word that gets used in a variety of different ways. Yeah. So some people say, oh, selfish, and that might be no. the individual kind of thinking heart, heart. So people get confused, I think, with the word self. It's right. one of the terminological issues that, you know, it's, but yeah. So when you read the Upanishads, what they talk about is the, as the self, the self is always in the heart, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly through the Upanishads. Uh, and the Vedas, the the self is found in the heart, and they say it's the smallest, it's the smallest uh, atom in the world, and the greatest uh, aspect of the universe, all found in the heart. And that's that exactly, is, and that is the self. That's exactly what the Taoists say too. Yeah. They say uh, you know smaller than a mustard seed, something yeah. like that, which is of mm-hmm. course a biblical mm-hmm. uh, comparison as well. Yeah, and uh, and greater than. Anything else. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to get a real idea of like a lot of Christ's parables, mm. um, go read the Upanishads. Hmm. There are places within there where, I mean, they, these are the Psalms. These are, these are some of the deeper biblical teachings, especially if Christ's teachings are in the Upanishads. Like you see the origin of this teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I did. Like when I'm reading through it and I've been listening to it on audio as well. And over and over again, I'm like, wow, this is like a parable. These, these are, this is Christ's teachings here. Well, you know, there's three possible ways of looking at that, at least. <laughs> you know, one would be that there are some people who think that Christ went east. Yes. And, so, you know, because there's this sort the of. The missing years. Yeah, the missing years. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so that's one possible theory. The other would be this kind of like um, that the Christ story and uh, so many of these great spiritual traditions are basically aggregations of a variety of world stories that had been traveling around. And so ancient wisdom traditions had been going on for a long time, many different threads from many different parts of the world. They would be updated periodically for new languages, Mm -hmm. uh, new civilizations. They would want to excise certain portions, you know, like so there was this kind of editing process happening. Mm -hmm. And because it was a pool of ideas circulating, there would be a commonality. But the third possibility is that anyone who thinks seriously (laughs) about these things would come up with the same basic ideas irrespective of whether they were in contact with each other. Universal human experience. And because the eternal is a a unity, and if you tap into that unity, you're going to get the same message. Exactly. (laughs) It is an overarching underlying truth, right? Uh, Truth is one, paths are many, right? 
And so it is the it is the fabric of the cosmos. And if you tune into that, you get the same teachings everywhere. Amen. You know, and that's the gift of it. So. Yes. But the only thing that I would emphasize at this point, which would be, of course, <laughs> characteristic of me, is that if we think that we have gotten that message, we are tempting the fates. Yes. Yeah. It's a very, very tricky thing. And, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's really clear when you, when you read something and it resonates very strongly that there's yeah. real wisdom there, that some, someone has managed to capture essence, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But... We do have to be very careful with the idea that somehow or another, now we've got it. Right. And certainly when it comes to our own experiences, deriving some kind of a formula from them, it's so easy to go wrong. (laughs) 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 I speak from experience on that one. Yeah, I always think, you know, once I think I got it, I, I lost it. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's the, the humility of the spiritual uh, path of just realizing uh, I know nothing, and I have fleeting glimpses, and um, and it's all fate and destiny, and I can just all I can do is just um, pray for grace. <laughs> That was good. <laughs> that was good. Okay, you know, maybe there's something to uh, recording without the ear goggles on. That's true. You Not know, hearing kinda, it, Yeah, you get back in, into this space instead of being in this weird... Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So, yeah. hopefully it sounds good. I, I, I guess we'll find out. We'll figure... We'll, we'll, <laughs> I have to imagine it does. <laughs> it's not like it's going to sound any different just because we were wearing these. Well, yeah, I guess we, you know, we might have done a few things differently, but that would probably be the problem, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like we live in a world where people are constantly monitoring everything that they're doing. Right. And that's not really natural, is it? No. It seems like most creatures are not constantly going, should I do that? What, you know, <laughs> yeah. how was that? Did, Did I, I sound okay right? when I yeah. said that? Right? So, yeah, that's... Uh, so we just went au natural. I, I, I felt like a that. little naked at first Did without you? the ear goggles on, yeah. I felt kind of normal. Yeah, because you, you usually wear earbuds. I wear the earbuds. Yeah, I yeah. don't have the big... Yeah, Yeah, but I forgot my headphones today. Good thing. So, it's a good thing. Did. Yeah, a great blessing. <laughs> okay. That was good. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> There won't be another one like that. But there'll be another one that's not like that. That's true. I just hope we didn't just uh, shoot it all right there. We're going to find out right now. (laughs) So stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel, visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com. And if you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash silentassembly. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, 
turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.